All right. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 19. Thank you, Joel, for singing that psalm for us this morning. I really appreciate it. And just so you guys know, uh, my wife has been having contractions for the last couple days. So if she gives me a face, I'm going to stop mid-sentence to just head out. And uh, David will uh, um, finish my sermon for me. So just leave the notes here. So. <laughs> All right, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 19. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the expanse is declaring the works of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of its chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of Yahweh is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoice in the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Yahweh are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, even more than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your slave is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your slave from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. In 1882, there was a short illustration used by a philosopher, and it goes something like this. Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I am looking for God. I am looking for God. The atheist standing around began to laugh and say, Have you lost him? Did he lose his way like a child? Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage? Or perhaps he's immigrated. The madman sprang into their midst and pierce them with his glances. Where has God gone? I shall tell you, we have killed him. You and I, we are his murderers. But how have we done this? How were we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What did we do when we unchained the earth from its sun? Where is it moving now? Where are we moving now? Is there any up or down left? We're moving backward, sideward, 
forward in all directions? Are we not perpetually falling? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed Him. How shall we, murderers of all murderers, console ourselves? This quote summarizes the mindset of our culture. It does a pretty good job defining what the 21st century believes about God and Christianity in general. The illustration is meant to show that the new advances in science and reason, philosophy and human achievement have made the belief in God irrelevant, unintelligent and unbelievable. Yet the madman himself realizes that once you remove God from the equation, the world immediately ceases to make any sense at all. And that's where our world is today. We're confused. We're lost. Unsure of who we are and why we're here. Life has no meaning, so it's up to us. It's up to the individual to figure it out on their own. They they scoff at Christianity like Pilate scoffed at Christ. What is truth? But our text this morning will answer that very question. From Psalm 19, I'm going to hand you all a hammer and three nails, and we're going to just seal the lid to the coffin of this madman, the man who rejects God. We're going to see why the psalmist says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Scripture will show us why your faith is intelligent, why your Christianity is believable. It will show you why being here in church is not, as the world will tell you, a waste of time. In fact, I'm going to show you why being here is the most reasonable use of your time. The first now we're going to hammer in is the works of God. The works of God. Let's look at verse 1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. The fundamental reason we as Christians believe in God is because God has revealed Himself to us. What we have here in verses 1 through 6 is the Scripture's own testimony of the first revelation from God, what we call natural revelation or general revelation. And that is, nature bears witness to the fact that there is a God. And what is nature telling us about God? What is the speech that the text says is being poured forth? What is the knowledge that is being revealed? The text says it's the glory of God. It shows us that there must be, natural revelation shows us that there must be a supreme architect. And that supreme architect must be almighty. He must be wonderful. He must be a genius of geniuses to explain how he hung the galaxies and painted the stars. All nature shows that there must be purpose. This can't be just a random 
occurrence of chance because everything just fits together so perfectly. Just think about the sun, for example. If the sun was just a little bit further away from the earth, we'd be popsicles. But if it was a little bit closer, we'd be french fries. But uh, today I'm going to point out three truths about God's glory declared in God's works. Three truths about God's glory declared in God's works. Number one, God's glory is declared universally. God's glory is declared universally. Look again at Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the expanse is declaring the works of His hands. David uses the heavens as an all-encompassing expression for all of creation. The heavens just serve as a perfect example of God's power and wonder in all of His works. Abraham Lincoln once said, I can see how it might be possible for a man to look down upon earth and be an atheist, but I cannot conceive how a man can look up into the heavens and say, there is no God. The heavens show God's immense power. It shows His creativity, His authority. Psalm 8.1 says, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth, who displays Your splendor above the heavens. The heavens, though, are not alone in its chorus. Psalm 148 declares, Praise Yahweh from the earth, sea monsters and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind, doing His word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle, creepy things and winged birds. Let them praise the name of Yahweh, for His name alone is set on high. His splendor is above earth and heaven. God's glory is declared by every atom in creation, from microscopic biomes to the starry galaxy. Number two, God's glory is declared unceasingly. God's glory is declared unceasingly. Verse two, day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Day in and day out, night after night, all of creation is continually cycling through this one theme, endlessly pouring forth wordless speech. It's a heavenly sermon that's just been put on repeat. It's a continual circle of life that declares the same thing over and over again. God's glory. Day and night, for all time, constantly proclaiming God's glory over and over. Look with me again at first one, verse 1, the first verse. And the expanse is declaring the works of His hands. The Hebrew word for declaring is in a verb form that communicates that something external is forcing the object of the verb to do something, to perform a certain action. In this case, the expanse is being caused to declare the works of God's hands. Something is making the expanse continually declare God's works. Now, what is making the expanse declare the works of God? It is the glory of God. 
The subject of this verse is also the subject of all creation. It is the glory of God in creation that causes creation to say, look at God. Look at what He has done. Look at His power. Look at His might and His wisdom. Who could have thought of the billions of stars and millions of galaxies and named every one of them? Could you have thought of gravity? Could you have thought of time and motion? Look at Him. Look at His glory. Look at His power. God is causing His works to unceasingly declare His glory. And much like in nature, shouldn't we declare God's glory whenever we are exposed to it? Number three, God's glory is declared unequivocally. And what I mean by unequivocally is that there isn't any room for doubt. The heavens are loud and clear about this. Their line has gone out through all the earth. Verse 4. The line here refers to a written script, like a phrase or statement. A wordless phrase just etched into the sky. In our passage, the line refers to what the heavens are telling, and it's the glory of God. The psalmist is painting a picture of a stylus, constantly chiseling out this one phrase in the heavens, the glory of God, the glory of God, over and over, where everyone on the planet can see it. No one can escape the reality of this message. Go ahead and turn to a passage I know you're all familiar with, Romans 1, Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. And how has He made it clear to them? How is the truth of God's self-evident glory in the heart of every man? For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, both His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, and not just seen, mind you, but being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. God's divine power and wisdom has been clearly understood by everyone through the revelation of God in nature. Yet Paul continues, he says, For even though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or give thanks. There it is. The exact thing that nature declares to man is the exact thing that unregenerate man refuses to give to God. Glory. Nature reveals enough about God to prove that there is a God. And every person knows that they should bring glory to this God. This God is worthy. This God is valuable. This God deserves glory. Go ahead and turn back to Psalm 19. We're going to look at verse 4. Verse 4. And it, it just seems here that David gets a little sidetracked about the sun. Let's just go ahead and read it. In, in them, 
He has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. What David is saying here is that the sun covers everything. All life feels the heat of the sun in some form or other. So every person cannot hide from the revelation of the glory of God revealed to them in nature. There's another reason David placed this here, so, but I'm going to mention it later. We're going to come back to it, so let's just leave a note and put a pen in it, and we'll come back to it. We may be able to see that there is a God in nature, yet the works of God in nature are insufficient to tell us how we are to know this God. We need language. We need more than speechless words. Looking at the stars isn't going to lead you to the cross. That leads us to the second nail we need to hammer in. The Word of God. The second reason your faith is reasonable is because God has revealed Himself to us through His Word. Verse 7. The law of Yahweh. Let's stop right there. When we, as New Covenant believers, think of the law of Yahweh, the testimony of Yahweh, the precepts of Yahweh, the commandment, the fear, and the judgments of Yahweh, we might just picture this as referring to the whole Word of God in general. Yet that is not really how David defines it. Remember who this was written to. Remember who was this written by. David wrote this psalm to the choir director. It was supposed to be used in Israel's worship. At this point in biblical history, what David would have been referring to was the Torah, the law, the first five books of the Bible. And just look at what David has to say about it. It restores the soul. It makes wise. It rejoices the heart. And frankly, that's not what majority of evangelicals would have to say about the Old Testament, let alone the Torah today. Instead, we hear things like it's too irrelevant or it's too archaic. But we rarely hear endures forever or enlightening to the eyes. Christian, your faith is based on the Torah. It's based on the whole Old Testament. And what the 21st century church needs today is preaching from the Torah because it does restore the soul, makes wise the simple, it rejoices the heart, it enlightens the eyes, endures forever, it is righteous and more desirable than gold and the drippings of the honeycomb. This passage here is David describing the beauty and sufficiency of God's revelation as an Old Testament, an Old Covenant saint. So if Israel was able to see the sufficiency of Scripture with what had been revealed to them, how much more should we as New Covenant saints who have the completed canon of Scripture see the Bible's value, its worth? Through verse 7 through 11, we're going to look at several reasons the Word of God destroys unbelief and shows how your faith is reasonable. And I'm going to back 
I'm going to break up these reasons into two parts, okay? Two parts. The first part is the attributes of God's Word, and the second is the activity of God's Word, the attributes of the Word of God. Number one, the law of Yahweh is perfect. It's perfect. Perfect in this context gives a sense of completeness. The law of Yahweh is complete. It has nothing missing or any error in it. The best way you can understand this term is the word spotless, like a spotless lamb. Unlike secular writings that may have some bits of truth in it, God's law is completely true. We don't sit over it and see what's true and what's not. It sits over us. Unlike Nebuchadnezzar, who was, as the King James Version puts it, weighed in the balances and found wanting, God's word is never weighed, it is never tried in court or put on a scale, and it certainly isn't lacking anything. His word is perfect. It is complete. It is spotless. Number two, the testimony of Yahweh is sure. Another way of putting this is faithful. The testimony of Yahweh is faithful. When you are guided by the law of God, it won't steer you wrong. You have everything you need in the scriptures to live a life that glorifies God. That is the point. It's not that God's word is a magic recipe of rules to follow and all will just go well for you. No, God's word is to be read and understood and obeyed so that the believer can do the one thing with his life, and that is glorify God. And this book is the manual on how that can be accomplished. Number three, the precepts of Yahweh are right. This may seem like just another way of saying that the law of God is true, but it has a little bit more implication to to it than just that. The fact that the law of God is right means by implication that every other way is wrong. Proverbs 14 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. If your life is not chartered by the scriptures, then you are going the wrong way. Number four, the commandment of Yahweh is pure. In this statement, David is showing us that the knowledge of right and wrong come from the knowledge of God's word. It kind of makes me laugh when I hear the world just debating on the difference between right and wrong and morality in general. They, they can't possibly know. Look at the world around us today. Down is up and up is down. Evil is praised as good and, and good is praised as evil. That's the result of a people who refuse to bow the knee to Yahweh, who think that their own way is best. And God just gives them over to a reprobate mind. God's word is pure. It shows us the way to live our lives to his glory. Number five, the fear of Yahweh is clean. This is referring to worship. The word fear here is referring to worship. The worship that God prescribes is clean worship. The word clean is a term used to describe God's covenant people as they were to come before God's presence in worship. To many Canaanite cults, to fear their God was filled with superstition and gross cultic practices that the Torah openly condemned as unclean and unholy abominations. The worship God describes is holy. It sanctified worship. It's clean worship. So David here is just contrasting what the scripture requires compared to what the nations around them practiced. 
Number six, the judgments of Yahweh are true. You guys remember Pilate's question, what is truth? David here is answering the questions that every Gentile nation before and around him and after him have asked. The word of God is truth. Let me give you a tip. If you try to look for truth outside of God's word, you won't find it. All you'll find is more questions. Yet God, in His love and compassion, has freely written a book that has all the answers to life's probing questions. This word is that truth. This word is also, number seven, valuable. Valuable. God's word is worthy. It's inherently precious. It's more precious than gold and the wealth of every nation compiled into one bank account. God's word is far more valuable. It must be sought after like food for your stomach. Its value comes from the fact that, that it comes from an infinitely glorious God. It's, it's priceless. It's sweet to the soul. It may be easy for us, you know, to, to read Ephesians and the Gospel of John and just get overwhelmed by the sweetness of our Savior and see the beauty of our God. But, but David wasn't referring to the Gospels. He wasn't referring to the epistles when he wrote this psalm. He was referring to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Torah. The Torah is infinitely valuable. It's infinitely pleasurable. Here, Israel is singing this psalm. And agreeing with Paul, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Number eight, the word is eternal. It is eternal. It endures forever. It has no end. Isaiah 48 says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The word of God is eternal. And that's relevant for yesterday. It's relevant for today and for tomorrow. Uh, second part, activities of the Word of God. The law of Yahweh is active. As we read in Hebrews, it is living and powerful. Its design is intended to show God's people how to live righteously before Him. It isn't something that you can just approach and take some things out that you want and craft your own moral compass with it. It isn't a playbook on how to crack the system and live your best life now. This is how you please Him. You aren't concerned about your life. You're concerned about His glory. You want to know how your life can be like the heavens? How do you constantly declare day and night the glory of God? You read the Word, and then you watch what it does to you. Number one, it will restore your soul. The idea here is transformed. The law of Yahweh transforms the soul. It will transform your soul. It will restore your life. Number two, it will make you wise. It makes wise the simple. God's word is powerful. It can take someone who is living a life completely contrary to the Word of God, it can take the atheist, it can take the madman, and teach them how to live a life that glorifies God. Psalm 119 says, 
I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. The Word of God makes you wise. Number three, it will bring joy to your heart, rejoices the heart. There is no true and lasting joy, but that which comes from the Word of God. The world just troubles themselves by trying to find out how to make themselves happy. But the only way that they can have true joy is from the Word of God, from God's way. Number four, it will enlighten your eyes. It enlightens the eyes. The irony of the enlightenment is the name itself. People claim to be enlightened after removing the law of God as the starting point for their worldview. Yet the law of Yahweh is what enlightens. It shows the difference between right and wrong and how to live. Without God's word, we aren't enlightened, we're blind. Number five, it warns you. The word warns you. In verse 11, it says, Moreover, by them your slave is warned. The scriptures warn the believer of the consequences of a life that seems right to their own eyes, but the end thereof is the way of death. Number six, it supplies great rewards. Not only was Israel warned by the law, but Israel was also promised blessing for faithfulness to the law. Deuteronomy 28 just gives a whole list of all the national blessings that Israel would receive for keeping the Torah. And that is what David was referring to. But yet in the New Covenant, we have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. These are poured out to the believer as if they kept all the commandments themselves. Christ's righteousness is credited to your account. The benefits of keeping the law are imputed to you, making you a pure and acceptable worshiper of God. Which brings us to the final nail in the coffin. The final nail that shows us that God has revealed himself to us. That your faith is reasonable. That you aren't wasting your time being here. So get your hammer ready. Final nail. The worship of God. The worship of God. The works of God, the word of God, and the worship of God. Verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your slave from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless. And I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. David here is preparing his heart for worship to the Lord. This is a song to sing to Yahweh, as to praise for him, for his natural, natural revelation and his specific revelation. Some... French philosopher said that in a hundred years' time, the Bible will cease to be printed. Well, that was close to 300 years ago. And the Bible is still the number one most printed and sold book in the world. Why? Because God is still working today. He's building His church. He's gathering worshipers for Himself into His kingdom. The church is... Growing, it's not shrinking. 
it may seem like we're surrounded by utter darkness. That it's getting worse before it gets better. And don't misunderstand me, it, it will. But that doesn't mean the plan of God in this world is failing. God hasn't taken a day off. His plan of redeeming a people to Himself is only growing. God will not fail in His work in the world. The Word of God shows us that the worship of God will only increase more and more. The evidence of the work of God to save people and bring them to their knees before Christ far outweighs any so-called science or philosophy that the devil will try to throw at the church. We aren't here mourning over a dead God. We are a church worshiping a risen Savior. And every new believer... Every new church member and every baptism is proof that God is still living and well. Humanity, left to itself, is so spiritually bankrupt that the fact that anyone is a worshiper of Christ at all is a testament to his existence. And from this text, let's see how we are to bring worship before Yahweh. The worship of God must be offered in purity. The saint has to deal with his sin before he can come before God. The Word of God is what convicts of sin. It's what also prepares the heart for worship. Verse 12 and 13 says, Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your slave from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. The Word of God keeps us back from sin. That's why the psalmist says, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. The word of God shows us how to worship God. Verse 14 says, Let the words of my mouth in the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. David here is concerned about the worship he brings to God. David's desire was to offer God doxology that was grounded in the Word of God, in sound theology, and in, also, moral purity. God reveals His Word to us so that we can worship Him in a way that pleases Him. The Torah was written to show Israel how to glorify God to the Gentile nations around them. We see in the Bible that Israel's goal as a nation was to show the world God's way, one of their goals. Israel was to be that city on a hill, a light to the nations. And get this, this psalm is an example of what that missional Israel looks like. David wrote this psalm not only for the benefit of the people of Israel to sing to God, but also for the purpose of calling the nations to worship and obey Yahweh. Let me show you real quick. Look back at verse 1. We see the name God, glory of God. That word is El. It is a generic term for God in Hebrew. It denotes God's power and sovereignty over the world, but it doesn't relate God's personal covenant love. It's just general. So why does David start a psalm with El and not Yahweh when referring to creation 
to creation telling of God's glory like he does in other psalms. There's plenty of other psalms when David uses Yahweh's name specifically to tell of his glory in creation. It's a stark contrast when you get to verse 7. And you have Yahweh's name is mentioned seven times. What is David doing? Remember that note that we put a pen in? We're going to go back to that real quick. We're going to go back to verses 4 through 6. David here spends close to three verses just focusing on the sun. The sun was worshipped in Canaanite cults. Yet David spends a lot of time on, on it, laboring the fact that it is simply following the pattern that God had ordained it to do back in Genesis. He shows the Canaanites that the son that they worship submits to his God. Then he immediately introduces the law of Yahweh. David is being evangelistic here. He is evangelizing with music. We do this all the time. We sing truths of the word of God every Sunday. And then we hear so many conversions that happen during, have occurred during the singing of hymns, then the singing of psalms, singing the truths of God's word. And that's what Psalm 19 is. It's a call to the nations to worship Yahweh. Now, you might be wondering, why are we nailing the lid on this madman's coffin? Are we burying him alive or something? What's going on? Well, it's because Scripture tells us that he is the one who is truly dead. Romans 8.6 says, For the mindset on the flesh is death. And Ephesians 2.1 describes those outside of Christ as dead in transgressions and sins. The madman can't comprehend the glory of God. It is foolishness to him because he is spiritually dead. Sinners cannot worship God because they are dead in their sin. Sin keeps us. It keeps them from doing the one thing God created them to do, and that's glorify Him. Nature glorifies God, God's Word glorifies God, and God's people glorify God. Yet the madman continually resists giving God the glory due to his name. One day, every madman will bow the knee before God. Glory will be given to Yahweh, whether as a rock and redeemer or as a righteous judge. And you can be confident in your faith, dear Christian, because God has chosen to reveal himself clearly to you through his power in nature, and more importantly, more clearly, directly through his word. Worshiping God is not a waste of time. It is what you were created for. It is what all creation is here for. All of this brings you to this one question. Will you join the heavens in writing this line with your whole life? Glory be to God. Let's pray.
Abba Father, your word is so clear. You have made creation to declare your glory. You have created us for your glory. And we pray as we come before you that our hearts would be made pure. And that if someone here today who has refused to give you the glory due to your name by submitting to your son, to Christ, that they would bow the knee to him as their rock and redeemer. That your word would soften their hearts and would bring them to your cross and that they would be saved today and be counted among your worshipers. And that they could worship you with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.